Turn, if you would, tonight to Psalm 119. Abby, where are the songs? Okay, thank you. There's a song connected with this stanza of the psalm that we're going to sing at the end of the service tonight. I did not know where they were. Psalm 119, we began looking at uh, verses 49 through 56. And we noted a theme of remember and see that within this stanza starts in verse 49, remember, and verse 52, I have remembered, verse 55, Lord, I remember your name in the night. And so this is remembering God's word. And you could certainly say the blessings that come from that or the influence that comes from remembering God's word. And it's been an encouraging stanza to meditate on. And I hope it'll encourage us tonight as we consider. I want to just review briefly. And uh, then we'll look at the remainder of the verses we haven't looked at in detail. Let's read through it together. Look at verse 49. The heading over each of these stanzas, remember tells us that the first word of each of the verses of the lines starts with that letter. So where we have R-T-T-I-B-Y-O-T in Hebrew, it's Zion, 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 all the way down. And of course, that's part of the poetry. The other aspect of the poetry is that there's a thought within this whole psalm that is emphasized, a theme that is emphasized, and that is God's word, using all these different terms. And you can see that in this stanza as well. Verse 49 says, remember the word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. The arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I have remembered your ordinances from of old and comfort myself. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. O Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. This has become mine, that I observe your precepts. This is a humble prayer. He is praying as the servant of the Lord. This is a king, and yet he still views himself as a servant, verse 49. He's remembering the promises of God, the promise of God in verse 49, which has given him cause for hope. God's word as he gives us a promise, gives us hope. He can't wait to bless us 
in one sense. So he gives us his word, but that word, which gives us hope, informs of a of future blessing. So there's the blessing of the hope as well as the blessing when it comes. It's a wonderful thing that God does in his love that he makes promises and then he fulfills them. David, as he hoped in God's promises, went through affliction. Verse 50 says, this is my comfort in my affliction. And God's word strengthens us, comforts us, gives us life. He says, your word has revived me. It has strengthened me or preserved me alive is another alternate uh, translation of that phrase. But we can certainly see the power of God's word to both revive, even give life from the dead physically, but also give life to God's people and revive them spiritually. And certainly see God's word as a source of revival in history. The time of Josiah, God's word came in and transformed literally the landscape of Israel, Judah. He is in affliction. If he's describing the affliction in terms of verse 51, he has opposition from those who are proud and mocking him, scoffing at him, laughing at him with contempt. And what do we do when we are mocked or shown contempt? Sometimes we just, because we're sinned against, we sin back. Because we are sinned against, we give up. We think it's not worth it. I don't want to do this. But David clung by God's grace to God's word. He says, yet I do not turn aside from your law. So there's a godly resolution to hold fast to God's word, to keep on seeking to obey, to not turn to the right hand or to the left, to stay on that pilgrim pathway. Remember your word to your servant. Remember your promise. He's asking God to remember, but he is also saying, I have remembered. And this is where we're looking at the rest of this stanza, a little more detail, I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord, and comfort myself. His word has been a comfort in his affliction. What specifically in God's word is a comfort to him? Well, in verse 52, it says your ordinances from of old or your everlasting ordinances is another possible translation. What's he talking about here? Well, there certainly is a need for comfort if he is facing those who are showing contempt for him. The question is, how is he getting that comfort? You can get comfort from the statements of Scripture that describe the end of the righteous and the end of the wicked, like we read this morning in Proverbs 11 what's going to be true for the righteous, what's going to be true for the wicked. This is God's word. It's not in his Torah. It's not in the first five books of the Bible, um, which David, as he had God's word at this point, would have he would have had the law, Moses' law. But we read this morning, the righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. 
if you're walking in righteousness and someone is opposing you in wickedness, your righteousness, the fact that you're walking after the Lord and seeking to obey him, doesn't mean things are going to be easy, but they will be easier because you're following the Lord. He will help you even through the most difficult times. But Solomon says the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. He's going to shoot himself in the foot, so to speak. Proverbs 11.8, the righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked takes his place. Uh, if you think of trouble as a room, the righteous gets rescued out of it, but the wicked enters it. In other words, the wicked trying to do what they do against the purposes of God, against the people of God, are going to find themselves in trouble after all. They're going to tie the noose, and they're going to be hung with it, so to speak. Proverbs 11.31, if the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? So God rewards the righteous. He rewards them in life, certainly in death. But the wicked are going to receive according to their deeds. There's going to be a recompense. God deals with those who are wicked. Now, we don't always see that. We oftentimes look at the wicked and see how they're seemingly prospering. So what I'm saying is, as you think about verses like that, and there are plenty of verses in the Word of God like that, you can take comfort and encouragement from God's words that describe that end, those principles, if we can put it that way. But there's also, and this is where I think it's, it's uh, significant to look at the word that is used here in verse 52. He says, I've remembered your ordinances. That's the word for judgments. Translations give this um, particular word and the connected words because it says your ordinances from of old, a number of different translations. One translation, New, uh, New International Version, has ancient laws. Uh, the ESV, if you have that, is rules from of old. Of course, the New American Standard here has ordinances from of old. The Greek translation of the Old Testament has the word krima, which is a word that means judgment. And I think that actually is the best reflection of the Hebrew word, mishpat. It's the word judgment. Now, God's word uses this word in the context of both statements, principles, commands, as well as acts of God's judgment. Let me give you an example. Leviticus 18.3 says, you shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes you are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes. That's the same word. Here it's translated ordinances. And there it could be translated ordinances. You are to perform my ordinances. The idea is God's direction, his command that leads people to do something 
that he has directed. And he says, you're not to really follow the ordinances of the people of Canaan, just like you weren't supposed to follow the ordinances of the people of Egypt. Okay, so that's one way to look at this word. But the other way to look at this word is that God is speaking about something he has done in the past, where he has delivered a verdict, and his verdict has brought judgment upon those who oppose him. And let's just remember the context here. Verse 51, the arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I have remembered your ordinances. Now, if David is saying, I've remembered the path that I'm supposed to be on, that makes sense. And that may be why translations chose that particular way of uh, reflecting that word. But there also is a possibility that what David is talking about is how God has judged the arrogant in the past. How has God dealt with those who have shown contempt arrogantly against his people? And you could certainly go back to the law. You could go back to Pharaoh, who when he was confronted by Moses, he said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And he was arrogantly showing contempt for Moses, for Aaron, for the people, persecuting them. But what did God do? He brought plague after plague after plague after plague upon the Egyptians until they finally humbled themselves. And when they finally let the people go, and once again in their arrogance chased after them, how did God deal with them? Well, he destroyed them in the bottom of the Red Sea. And what did he do for his own people? He rescued them. He rescued them from the aggressor, the one who was going to destroy their children and enslave them. So David certainly could be talking about the commandments of the Lord that would direct his life. But he also, and I I think it stands to reason that in the context, he is talking about those historical acts of God when he delivered a verdict and judged the enemies of of his people and then saved the people. William Plummer, in his commentary on the Psalms, said this, God is now as great an enemy of sin as he was when he drowned the old world and destroyed the cities of the plain. God is now as true to his people as when he saved Noah by the ark and sent the angels to rescue Lot. So those are two other instances of historical acts of judgment. And knowing that God has dealt in the past in that way, and that he is Yahweh, notice what he says in verse 52, I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord, or O Yahweh. He is the changeless, self-existent, sovereign God. He does not change. What he has been in the past, he always will be. What he has been for his people, he will be for each one of his people. And that gives David consolation. And it is a wonderful thing when we think about that, when we think about the fact that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Paul says in Romans 15, whatever was written in the past was written for our learning or our instruction so that perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
And so there is encouragement to be taken from looking at how God has acted historically and looking at my circumstance and knowing God hasn't changed. How is he going to deal with me? David says, I remembered your judgments or your ordinances from of old and comfort myself. This is a self-comfort that he's giving as he looks back and reflects, what has God done? What's my circumstance now, but what has God done in the past? And it's a consolation that God would not change and that for his case, and he could plead this, that God would act as he always has on his behalf. Notice in verse 53, there's another response to God's word or a benefit, you might say. I don't know if you would call this benefit, but when you think about David and his righteous heart, heart that was a new heart by God's grace, certainly still struggled with sin, but a new heart. How did he think about the arrogant? How did he think about the wicked, verse 53, who forsook God's law? Well, the the verse begins, verse 53, with a sudden strong emotion. Uh, It's translated here, burning indignation. If you look at the different verses where this same word is used. It's an interesting word, translated burning indignation here in Psalm 11 and verse 5. It says, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Burning wind. Lamentations 5.10, our skin has become as hot as an oven because of the burning heat of famine. So burning is certainly the idea. He connects it here. Uh, the, the translators connect it with indignation, as if there's anger that has arrested him because of his view of the wicked. A couple other translations. John Calvin rendered the word terror. Another writer, horror. Some trying to be very uh, specific and connected to these other passages. One writer said, a deadly east wind seizes me, using that as an image, or another horror as a tempest has seized me. William Plummer says, the emotion, which in English we call horror, is one of the strongest. It consists of terror, which is great fear, mixed with detestation or hatred of something. What a horror. We use that word that way. This is horrible. This is awful, terrible. And what is awful and terrible and a horror to this heart? It's the wicked who abandoned God's law. Notice he says, burning indignation has seized me. Again, this sudden strong emotion. And what is the cause? The cause is the wicked who forsake, abandon, discard God's law, walking in their own paths instead. I don't know what was going through Moses's mind, but we know he broke those tablets when he came down the mountain and he saw the idolatry. When Ezra saw that the people were very obviously sinning in their relationship with the Gentiles, he started to literally pull out his beard. 
The scripture says he sat down appalled because of the wickedness that had overtaken God's people. One of the most dramatic ones is when Phinehas, the son of Aaron, had seen the children of Israel engage in idolatry, worshiping Baal. And in the process of that worship, there was immorality. There were Israelites who were mixing with these Moabites. They were worshiping their gods. They were committing acts of immorality. And one of the men of Israel brought one of those women right into the camp as they were recognizing that this was sin and they needed to repent. Phinehas, as he's standing there along with the other Israelites near the tent of meeting, and there's a heart that's just recognizing the seriousness of this sin, somehow became aware of this man and this woman, guilty of idolatry brought it right into the camp. And he went and grabbed a spear and he ran and he thrust them both through because God was being dishonored right in the middle of the camp. God gave him an everlasting covenant because he acted with zeal for the honor of God. God is holy. He deserves to be worshipped, particularly within his own camp of his people that he rescued out of Egypt. God commended Phinehas that day, and I think this attitude towards wickedness is commendable. Horror. Zeal for the honor of God. This is a godly reaction to the disobedience that we see all around us to God's law, to God's word. When God is dishonored, what is your response? Is that a matter of humor? God is being dishonored. Is that a matter for no concern? Or is it of great concern? The problem, the greatest problem with sin is not so much that it's just going to harm us or bring harm or hurt to our family or our church or our society, the greatest problem is that God is not being honored. God is not being glorified. He's worthy of the utmost obedience. All of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and when he's not being honored, and when that spreads to the world at large, and God is just being dishonored by the people of this world, this world that he made, it's appalling. It's horrible. God is going to bring judgment, rightly so. And what should our attitude be as believers? Charles Bridges says, are you then a believer? Then you will be most tender to the honor of the law of God. Every stroke at his law, you will feel a stroke at your own heart. Are you a believer? Then you will consider every man as your brother and weep to see so many of them around you crowding the broad road to destruction perishing as the miserable victims of their own deceivings. Prospect on every side as if God is, as if God were cast down from his throne and the creatures of his hand were murdering their own souls. And it is terrible what that man and that woman are doing in the camp of Israel, but the reality is they're destroying their own souls. 
And that's what's happening all around us. It's horrible to think not only of the sin against God, but the end of the wicked. Judgment is coming. When you see what is going to happen to the wicked, it is horrible. Unending torment in a lake of fire that burns with brimstone forever and ever and ever for breaking God's law. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. David was a man of strong emotion. Emotion here that's rightly founded upon the honor and holiness of God, of the seriousness of eternal punishment. May God give us a heart to see sin as it really is and help us to see sinners and the peril that they're in. Bridges goes on to say, shall we look upon souls hurrying on with such dreadful haste to unutterable everlasting torments and permit them to rush on blinded, unawakened, unalarmed? If there is a horror to see a brand apparently fitting for the fire, will there not be a wrestling endeavor to pluck that brand out of the fire? Have we quite forgotten in our own case the fearful terrors of the unconverted state, the almighty power of wrath and justice armed against us, the thunder of that voice, vengeance belongs to me, I will recompense, says the Lord? That was towards us. That was towards you. That was towards me. And it still is unless you've repented and turned from your sin. If you've repented and turned from your sin, found refuge in Christ. You're safe from the wrath of God. But there is no safety for the one who stands outside of that refuge that we find in Christ. And the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God is going to be poured out upon the wicked. What a horror. May the Lord help us not to forget that. And sometimes it is fear Through fear, some are saved. Fear of judgment, fear of punishment. They don't know necessarily everything about the gospel or Christ. They would need to, certainly, to come to Christ. But what drives them and impels them is they hear a story, the truth story, about the the eternal lake of fire and the judgment of God, the wrath of God that's coming, and they don't want to experience that. No one would if they knew what it was. Some are saved that way. And we ought not to fear or shrink from preaching, teaching, telling others about that lake of fire and eternity in hell. Jesus often spoke about it. Scriptures often speak about it. We would not be faithful to God's word if we hid it. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. They forsake, discard, abandon God's law. What does the holy heart do? What does the heart that's been redeemed do? He makes a song from God's law. The subject of his songs, verse 54, are God's statutes, his words, 
One writer said, how striking the contrast between the wicked and the Christian pilgrim. The wicked that forsake the law, the Christian pilgrim who makes it the subject of his daily song and the source of his daily comfort. Yes, these same statutes, which are the yoke and burden of the ungodly, lead the true servant of the Lord from pleasure to pleasure. Cherished by their vigorous influence, his way is made easy and prosperous. Evidently, therefore, our knowledge and delight in the Lord's statutes will furnish a decisive test of our real state before him. And I'm compelled to ask the question based upon this verse and even that thought is, what are you singing about? I had to ask myself that question. What am I saying about? What is my song? What is the song that delights my heart? Is it the songs of the world? The songs that delight in what the world delights in? Or instead, am I delighting in the praises of God and the purposes of God? The word of God. David says, your statutes are my songs. That's what this psalm is about. That's what many of the psalms are about. He's singing about God's word. David composed many, many songs, delighting in God, delighting in his word. Psalm 23, Psalm 1, Psalm 27, Psalm 42, Psalm 48. All over the place, David is rejoicing in God. Those songs occupied him in the fields as a young man. He played them. He sang them. He set them before God's people. He occupied himself with those songs. And they're to be our songs too. We are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in our heart to the Lord. This is how the word of God dwells richly in our heart. We don't want the world to dwell richly. We want the word to dwell richly in our hearts. That's what God's direction is. So the subject of our song is God's statutes and the sort of song that it is. What kind of a song is this? Well, notice the rest of the verse. He says, in the house of my pilgrimage. They're songs for a journey. Had a youth pastor as we worked as sponsors, a church in South Carolina who would have songs on a, the time it was a, either a tape or a CD or whatever that he would play on road trips with the teens. Just always some kind of selection of goofy, silly, funny journey songs. I know we sang songs about God's word too, but my point is they were songs for a journey. The songs that we sing when we think about the scriptures are songs for a journey. They're pilgrim songs. We're headed somewhere. So in those songs, we're reflecting on a destination. We're reflecting on the journey itself. Sometimes we reflect on the hardship. Sometimes we reflect on what gives us consolation or encouragement or helps us to step up the pace or gives us joy as we look ahead. It's interesting how David spoke of his house. He says, this is the house of my pilgrimage. That was a house built with cedar 
Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent cedar trees, carpenters, stonemasons, and built him a palace, and yet he did not consider that his final dwelling. That wasn't the big house in his mind that would occupy his attention forever, and even in his ministry as king, his attention was to the house of the Lord. He said in verse 17, I'm a stranger in the earth. The songs that he was singing, composing, sharing with other people were songs about God and the journey, God's shepherding care, God's loving kindness, God's grace, his goodness, his power, his salvation. So what are you occupying your heart with? Not in the church. We, we, we want, when we gather together, God to be honored, God to be worshiped. God to be praised. And I say not in the church because this that is what God's direction is here. But God's direction is also through our lives as we're on this journey that his words need to occupy our songs in other places too. It's not hymns for Sunday and the world's music for the rest of the week. If that's the case, you're going to have a worldly heart. You're going to have worldly values. I'm not trying to make a theology of music tonight, but I am saying if Scripture does tell us this is what needs to occupy our song life, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that can't be just for Sunday. That's not just for Sunday. It's for the journey. The journey continues through the week. Bridges said, never forget, we're not at home, only happy strangers on our passage homewards. Here we have no settled habitation, no rest. We're looking for a better country. And as we look, we're seeking for it. Our hearts are in the ways of it. Every day advances us nearer to it. In the spirit, the statutes of the Lord will be our song. Here are the deeds of conveyance, our title made sure to an estate, not small, of little account, or of uncertain interest, but an inheritance of incalculable value made over to us, and that's the inheritance undefiled. That's the one that continues forever. That's our destination. We're headed on a journey there. And so we sing songs like face to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face, what will it be? When with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ who died for me. What rejoicing in his presence when are banished grief and pain, when their crooked ways are straightened and the dark things shall be plain. Face to face, oh blissful moment, face to face, to see and know, face to face with my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who loves me so. Anticipating glory. That's a song of my pilgrimage. And what joy that gives us along the way. And what encouragement that could be as we share those with one another. Quickly, let's look at the last two verses here. Oh, Lord, I remember your name in the night and keep your law. So his song by day is the statutes of God. And because he's occupied with God's word in the day, and you can see throughout the stanza and throughout the psalm that that's his occupation. He is meditating in God's law day and night. So it would make sense if God has revealed himself and his name in his law that he would remember God's name. 
the glory of God. Compassionate and gracious, the Lord says to Moses, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. This is God proclaiming his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, Elohim, and then going through all of those attributes to communicate to Moses his glory. And you see David's Psalms, and they're filled with references to those attributes. They're filled with references to God's name. And if your mind and heart is occupied with God's word and you're singing about God's word, then it would be, it would be, I hate to say the word natural, but it doesn't it seem linked that you would then think upon his name? That it would just occur to you because it's been part of your meditation? The subject of your song, the subject of your thought, your meditation, then just in the night, when you don't have any light to be able to see the pages of Scripture, what comes to your mind is God. And I just ask you, what do you think about when you wake up in the night? Do you think about God? One writer talked about having, when he woke up or when people wake up, roving, vain thoughts. Thoughts that don't really have anything to do with God. But the blessed man and woman, Psalm 1, meditates in God's law day and night. If you're meditating on God's law, you're meditating on God. What a comfort and encouragement as opposed to anxious thoughts, worrisome thoughts, fearful thoughts. All of those thoughts that give us trouble. Spurgeon said, dear reader, as you lie in the dark, are your thoughts full of light because they're full of God? Is his name the natural subject of your evening reflections? If so, it will provide a mood to your morning and noonday hours. Or do you give your whole mind to the fleeting cares and pleasures of this world? If so, it is little wonder that you do not live as you should. No one is holy by chance. If we have no memory for the name of Jehovah, we aren't likely to remember his commandments. If we don't think about him privately, we will not obey him openly. I just want to encourage you, this verse encouraged me to guard my thoughts when I wake up in the night. To not just think about whatever, but to actually think upon God. If I'm awake and I want to go to sleep and I'm thinking about God, that'll be sweet because I'm thinking about God. If he lets me go back to sleep, that'll be great too. But if I start to worry, you ever do that? You wake up and you start to worry? You start to think about this, that, and the other thing that could go wrong or maybe something that is wrong? And then you're troubled and that's hard to go back to sleep? Or you wake up and you're fearful about something. You start thinking about what you're fearful about and the fear gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that alligator on the bed doesn't even exist, right? I remember your name in the night and keep your law. I guard your law. Spurgeon made that connection to our behavior. Verse 56, this, 
What's the this? This has become mine. That or because I observe your precepts. What I believe David is doing here is he's linking what he has said in this stanza to this statement. Very nearly his remembrance of God's name and keeping of his law, guarding his law. Why does he guard God's law? Why does he seek to obey it and keep it? He's meditating on it. Why does he remember God's name in the night? Why are God's statutes his songs? Why does he have comfort from God's judgments? Why does he have righteous indignation because of the wicked who forsake God's law? Why does he have comfort in affliction? Why does he hope in God's word? Why does he have all those things? He says, this has become mine because I observe your precepts. I watch over. That word that's translated observe is translated in Nahum chapter 2 and verse 1. Man the fortress. Verb. Man the fortress. It means to watch over it. Protect it. Guard it. God's word needs to be watched over, protected, guarded. And if I ever step outside of the bounds of God's word, I need to get back right into the place of obedience. By his help, with his spirit's help, most certainly. Now, you can ask the question, if the experience in verses 49 through 55 you would say, I don't do those things. I don't really hope in God's promises. I don't really have comfort in my affliction. I do turn aside when people show contempt for me. I don't obey. I don't remember God's judgments and receive comfort them. I don't really get upset when people disobey God. If none of that is your experience, then I would say there's a link. You're, you're probably not in God's word. It's not occupying your attention, your affection. It's not a part of your singing. And that's a revelation to us, isn't it? If I don't have the comfort, I don't have the cause of comfort. So I need to get back to the cause, which is God's word, God himself, as he's revealed himself. There are blessings, so many blessings from God's word that God gives us. These are just a few. May the Lord help us to see them in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we bow and we are thankful for your word. We thank you for the blessings that it brings. Even tonight as we've meditated on these things, we pray that we would see these blessings realized in our life. Help us even this week as we Leave this place to make your words, your statutes, subject of our meditation, our song, our comfort and joy. Give us grace, we pray, through your word, in Christ's name. Amen. I ask Chad if you'd pass those out. I need one myself. And Mike, too, thank you. Let's stand together once you get it.